It feels as though I should improvise a song. Here we are Monday, it's the scramble. I never heard this music before, so I don't, I don't have exactly a clue to how to do this. Kion uh, Wolf is off today, which means that I didn't have to write a comedy intro for her, but now I missed that comedy intro. Uh, I was reveling in the amount of extra free time I had today, and now I feel as though we're all a little cheated. Uh, but anyway, we'll get through that. This is the scramble. It's our Monday show. Uh, one of the things we try to do is plan a little less. Uh, and scramble a little bit more. So as the show goes along here, you'll hear uh, some sort of more up-to-the-minute kinds of stuff. You may have seen President Obama's uh, energy proposal, uh, maybe the first step in in a much stronger initiative uh, about greenhouse gases and climate change, which is sort of something we kind of committed ourselves to covering more in 2014 anyway. You may have already noticed that. Uh, Anyway, we'll we'll talk to our own commissioner of uh, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, talk about how that plays out in Connecticut uh, and how it plays out regionally, too. They're part of a regional greenhouse gas uh, initiative. Uh, And then towards the end, because we are, we think, the leading public radio. No, we know we are the leading public radio force on a national or state level for comprehensive coverage of the TV uh, game show Jeopardy. Uh, we will do another in our series of reports on Jeopardy. This is about the the ascendance of women on Jeopardy. Women have often gotten the short end of the stick uh, in many ways on Jeopardy, but right now they're kind of dominating, and there's some reasons for this. And in an odd way, I think it does, particularly the way we're going to talk about it with the guest we have coming up, it will correlate to this first segment that we're going to do uh, because, of course, Jeopardy is one of the few places outside the confines of the university, where generalized knowledge, where some kind of knowledge base is prized. Now, obviously, Jeopardy is more about coming up with the right answers than it is about thinking. Uh, but as our, our our super guest today is going to point out, both of those, I think, uh, know, knowing some of the answers, digesting enough of the canon so that you can be responsive to the prompts of Alex Trebek, uh, is one part of university's mission. And then, of course, being able to think is yet another. And there may even be a, a third part of that university mission. So we're going to talk about many things in higher education uh, today here in this first segment with Michael Roth, the president of Wesleyan University and the author of many books most recently, Beyond the University, Why Liberal education matters? Well, it's so you can do well on Jeopardy. We've already answered that question. Um, Case closed. Uh, Welcome to our show, President Roth. Thank you very much. Good to be here. I I didn't realize we'd go from a scramble to Jeopardy, but I do think, uh, as I recall, Jeopardy is about asking the right questions. That's right. So there is a great connection to uh, uh, liberal learning. So um, as we talk about that... um, you know, I actually maybe even want to key in for a second on the, the title of the book, Beyond the University, because yes. one, one of the points that you make, one of the arguments you make, is that kind of argument that if I look back on my university days and I say those were the best four years of my life, in, in a way, as far as you're concerned, something went wrong, right? Absolutely. Uh, there was a, a president of, of Wesleyan in the 50s through the 60s, Victor Butterfield, who would greet the freshmen every year, and they were freshmen in those days, all men, uh, and, and he would say, if these are the best four years of, of your life, we, would have fa- we will have failed you. And uh, that is the point, that you should go to college or to university not just to have an experience, uh, because it's, it's too expensive just to go there for four years of fun and games. You go there because you learn things, the value of which will be fully realized for many years after graduation. Although, I, you know, I think some, for, some, for many people, and I think in 2014 maybe more people than, than might have been the case uh, a few decades ago, although I have to say that I attended 
a, um, a liberal arts university during a period in the 1970s when its president, when Kingman Brewster, was complaining about, about what he referred to as the era of grim professionalism. So this, the conversation yeah. we're about to have isn't necessarily a new conversation. But, I mean, a lot of you know, students come to university with kind of the opposite notion that, that, first of all, they may be trying to obtain some kind of uh, professional credential or the, the, the groundwork for a professional credential. And maybe this is going to be the four years where they also find out who, you know, Jean-Jacques Rousseau is and, and what a Klimt painting looks like. But, you know, after that, they're really going to have to be focused more on making enough money to, to, to live a comfortable uh, life, which seems harder and harder to do. Um, so, so how do you answer that? How, how, I mean, a lot of them will say, look, I wouldn't be able to send my kids to Wesleyan if I spent the rest of my life thinking about liberal arts. Sure. Well, it's not that the value of the education comes across because you spend your time thinking about great books or great uh, paintings. The value uh, of that education comes through because of your capacity to continue to learn, and that may be learning about the profession you're in. It may be uh, learning about uh, how to be a more effective citizen. It may be learning things that make your life more meaningful. But we have to recognize that almost everybody who graduates from college today is going to have to get a job, and we want, they want to be, and we want them to be independent, that is, financially independent. And so it is important for colleges and universities to not just emphasize uh, the memorization of a canon or the acquisition of uh, a list of names uh, that you could refer to at cocktail parties or uh, things like that. Uh, that what, what a college and university should offer is uh, the development of habits of thinking and modes of learning that continue to serve you after graduation that have pragmatic value. So the last chapter of this uh, new book of mine is about pragmatic liberal education. And I do think that that's been a a theme in American history way back to the the, uh, founding of the country, that the uh, great uh, theorists or commentators on liberal education, uh, like Jefferson, like Ben Franklin, they were also very much against um, a kind of education that would just prepare you to be a gentleman, that is to prepare you to be somebody who doesn't have to earn a living. They wanted education to be broad, contextual, but also very much pragmatic. Yeah, and it seems, I mean, you think about Jefferson and, yeah, his whole notion of education was uh, that, first of all, it should be extended down the ladder of the social hierarchy uh, and also that it should equip people to think in a real kind of Lockean sense, uh, you know, and to to be able to resist the depredation of of tyrants uh, and to be able to uh, apprehend what was right and what was wrong. Um, And and I wonder, I I mean, it seems to me if, in fact, that were what a liberal liberal arts education now did provide, Ah, we might not have had, you know, Goldman Sachs. We might not have had 2008. I mean, it, it seems as though there were a lot of people who maybe weren't driven by their brief re- reading of Immanuel Kant as they went out into the workforce. Well, that, that's entirely possible, and, and uh, it, it, is, it is certainly our hope that when people have the tools to think through ethical as well as practical questions, that they will act with... Uh, more integrity, and they will act with more responsibility. Uh, you know, but I don't want to. I don't want to be uh, too naive about it and say, well, if only the people at uh, this bank had uh, spent more time in humanities classes, they would have behaved differently. 
uh, I think that instead we have to follow uh, Jefferson's lead here and to understand how the ability to see opportunity, to create value, and to resist uh, authority that's based merely on somebody else's privileged interest, that those abilities all come through an education uh, that, you can, that continues to be a resource for you after you graduate. Uh, and, and for the, the, the thinkers in American history that I look at in this book, they all um, insisted on education not just giving you the uh, equipment to, to fit into the status quo, but to give you the, the ability to see what in the status quo is worth preserving and what needs changing. And I fear that the critics today of, of liberal education, the narrow instrumentalists who want to see students just trained in a particular field, that what they really are doing is saying, let's make sure they don't change things. Let's make sure that the students are trained to just to conform to uh, the reality that we give them. Yeah, but is there also a criticism from the opposite end of the spectrum? Okay, so there's the narrow instrumentalist. We know what they think, and we know basically what gets produced by that, too, that kind of thinking, too. On the other, on the opposite end of the spectrum might be a set of criticisms from people saying, well, if, in fact, a broad-based humanities-based education uh, enables you to think, enables you to think critically, enables you to, to, to think beyond simply what you are told and, and, and beyond whatever received information is, why, why do we as a society think so poorly these days? For, I mean, you pick something like climate change, which we're going to be addressing in the, the segment after you leave. I mean, it seems as though as a nation we're unable to think you know, clearly about this thing, which has vast ramifications for our survival as a human race. You think maybe that would be something that, that people would get. And it seems as though that's not working somehow. It's not working as well as we want it to. But if you look at the, the education levels of those people who get it, as opposed to those people who feel it's some kind of cruel hoax by a liberal elite, I think you'll find that the, the, the education has contributed to the numbers of people who understand uh, this situation better. Uh, it's always hard to, to, for people to act against their immediate self-interest, right? I mean, it's always hard to get people to say, uh, well, I know this, is gonna, this may hurt for the next uh, year or two years or three years, but in the long run, it's going to be great. Most people are going to have a hard time doing that uh, because uh, we prefer gratification to delayed gratification. Um, and I, I think the best way to uh, enable citizens to create the conditions for effectively reducing uh, carbon uh, production, uh, carbon or carbon footprint, is to have them understand the long-term consequences um, uh, of our actions today. I don't think the alternative is less education. Uh, we need a more effective education, and we need that education not just at the college level, but in the basic science uh, training of our uh, young boys and girls. But, you know, if Jefferson were, were sitting here among us, he'd say, well, then that means we did fail, because if, in fact, what we've done is produced one class of people who can think critically, who can get something like climate change, who can understand it, this class of people who has an ad adequate education, and then a whole bunch of people who don't get it and who are fundamentally unscientific scientific and unreachable by logical arguments, something yeah, has gone yeah. drastically wrong with my, Thomas Jefferson's, vision of what we were going to do, particularly for the people for whom educational opportunities were not a given. Yeah, I, I think that's right. He would say that we, we have failed in that regard. But please note that the uh, majority of Americans actually do think that climate change is a reality. 
Um, what we have really failed to do is to produce a political class um, that will act in the interests of uh, the country rather than in their own narrow economic interests. And Jefferson would not be surprised at all about that. <laughs> he expected people with power to do anything they could do to preserve their power, including lie, cheat, and steal, uh, or just to solicit donations in ways that make sure that they'll get reelected. So Jefferson wouldn't be surprised. He might be surprised that a majority of people actually get to science. Uh, but he uh, would not be surprised that people we elect to office will do whatever they can, including mouth stupidities, to get reelected. We're talking to Michael Roth. He's the president of Wesleyan University. His uh, latest book is Beyond the University, Why Liberal Education Matters. So there's a, a documentary that's uh, coming out this month. Uh, you come off uh, pretty well in it. Uh, it's called Ivory Tower. It's by Andrew Rossi, the guy who did the documentary about the New York Times. Yes. But, but one of the arguments he's basically making in that, I mean, he's making some pretty negative arguments about the state of higher education. And one of the arguments he is making is about the failure of education to create social mobility. So, so that, you know, ultimately, when you look at the numbers still, the lowest quartile uh, of, on the socioeconomic ladder isn't getting that education. It's getting a different kind of education, if, if any at all. So, I mean, I hear the sorrow in your voice. Um, what have you got for me beyond your obvious sense of rue about that? <laughs> well, uh, in addition to my, my sense of rue, as you put it, um, I, I think that uh, we in the private sector in education have to do more to control costs and to provide opportunities for people who can't otherwise afford to be at places uh, that are uh, expensive, that, 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 are, that cost a lot to, uh, to run, like a Wesleyan, like a Yale. Uh, that these are schools that uh, should aggressively find students uh, who have the talent, the ambition, the, the capacity to, to really thrive in these educational environments um, and to make that education available to them. Uh, in order to do that, uh, we have to, in my case, I have to raise money um, so as to uh, have more scholarships for students who deserve to be here but uh, otherwise couldn't afford to be here. We also have to invest heavily in the public sector. Connecticut is an anomaly in our country today. We have it at UConn and throughout the public sector started to put more resources at the disposal of the public universities. But throughout the country, as you know, um, taxpayers have said we don't want to support higher education. And, in, and, and it does take money <laughs> to uh, teach students, especially students whose preparation in high school might not be what you'd hope for. It takes time. It takes, it takes talented professors. Uh, and, and that is not cheap. I know in Texas, they uh, did a show like this in Dallas last week. And in, in Texas, they're talking about a $10,000 BA. Well, you know, if you, they can also produce a $10,000 helicopter, but you don't want to get in there and fly. Um, it, you, some things, you, you know, you, they do cost money. Now, in my sector, I realize in the private, highly selective school sector, that a lot of schools had, have, over the last 25 years, dedicated themselves to providing luxury rather than just a great education. I think that luxury is anti-educational. And, you know, we at Wesleyan, we're an expensive place. I, I realize that. But we have, over the last few years and going forward, committed ourselves to keeping tuition increases in line with inflation. That's going to be hard to do, but I think only by making these schools more accessible, and we're doing that with online courses, we're doing that with different terms, different semesters, different experimental course offerings, only by making these schools more accessible 
Will we fulfill that dream of social mobility? You know, Colin, uh, more than three quarters of the people from the bottom economic quintile uh, uh, who get a college degree will not be in the bottom economic quintile because they, as a result of getting that degree. So we do know that a college education of some kind, it could be a two-year degree, it could be a four-year degree, a college education of some kind is a great path for social mobility. We just have to make it available to more people. Yeah, I mean, looking at all the studies, and I crunched as many studies as I could prior to this conversation, it's clear that what you're saying is true, that there, is it worth it? it you know, if, even if your only measure is economic, it is absolutely worth it, um, getting that degree. Of course, the, the other part of those studies is that the barriers to getting those degrees seem to be getting, if not getting better, maybe even getting worse. And I'm sure you read Paul Toff's uh, cover mm-hmm. story in the New York Times Sunday Magazine about how graduation rates seem to be tied to, once again, to, so- to socioeconomic indices more closely than they are tied to anything else. If you're in that top quintile, you're going to graduate. 90% of you are going to graduate. If you're in that bottom quintile, boy, does that number go down. But what was great about that article is that he showed that you, you, there are ways, tested ways, of improving that, that statistic. You know, the, the problem for low-income students who come to highly selective places or to great uh, public institutions like UT Austin is that they often feel like, I don't belong here. They're getting so many signals from the institution, from their families, from their neighborhoods, that they don't really, really belong there, even though they made it and they're qualified by every uh, uh, traditional metric. Um, and so what that article showed is that there are ways of building cohorts, creating advising councils, getting students together in small groups that don't that doesn't, doesn't dumb down the education. On the contrary, it forces people to work harder, giving them the support they need in groups to succeed. And so at Wesleyan, we're changing all of our introductory courses, for example. We have you know, three-quarters of our classes are small already, but the, 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 let's say a large introductory science class we've studied over the last few years, and we see that by breaking that class into tiny uh, project-based sections uh, with TAs and professors working with the students, we increase the performance of all students, but we dramatically increase the performance of students from underrepresented groups or for low-income students. And so we're revamping, on the basis of that data, uh, our introductory courses so as to increase retention in the sciences, especially for students from underrepresented groups. We know how to fix the problem, but it does take resources to fix it. You know, um, I just want to go back to the public universities, and I know you don't want to be the president of a private university decrying all kinds of problems with public universities. But, you know, you, you talked about the fact that taxpayers kind of rejected the idea of paying for higher education, and that's certainly part of the problem. But is, it, is that the only way in which the public university system is feeling its original goal, these land-grant universities, and, you know, th- that really were there to do something that Wesleyan can do uh, on a small-bore basis, but, you know, really ultimately not on a mass basis. And and so, I mean, you even look at from 2009 to, to 2013, uh, the borrowing uh, at, for public universities has gone up 26%. You know, some of that bl- is to blame for the taxpayers, but a lot of these public universities uh, seem to be trying to become something else, essentially elite research institutions with highly paid executives, you know, these vast suites of administrators doing God knows what. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, I mean, it seems as though something else went wrong besides grumpy, recalcitrant taxpayers driving around in yellow Eldorados and refusing to fund higher education. Sure. It's not just that the, uh, the taxpayers uh, refuse to, uh, to pay for higher education. It's that the, that the state legislators have um, 
passed along the responsibility for higher education to the student as a consumer. And the public universities, in the search for prestige and in the search for more paying customers, um, have had to do, th- have found themselves doing things, have had to do things uh, to become more attractive to, p- to those people who could pay uh, full fare. And that is di- di- diametrically opposed uh, to their original missions. Um, and, and they get rewarded for that. I mean, the incentives point in that direction. So you get rewarded for having a first-class uh, football team or a basketball team. You get rewarded for first-class uh, researchers. Um, and, um, uh, but the, tu- the tuition you can charge uh, has to go up in order to support those things because the state legislature is not su- supporting uh, the subsidies for tuition. That, that's a problem in many parts uh, uh, of the country, and I do think it, it, what it does is it, it closes doors, um, really important doors, uh, to quality education for people who are hungry for it and people who really want to um, uh, find a, a stream of of, uh, of instruction that will serve them after graduation. Uh, I, I know that at Westland, we've, over the last uh, just two and a half years really now, uh, have been doing online classes uh, that have attracted, I think now almost 700,000 students have taken classes from Little Wesley in the last couple of years. Um, and what, what's uh, so exciting to me about that is that, this, that there's an enormous appetite both in this country and around the world for a whole variety of college-level classes. Uh, and the, I think the hunger for education is there. The desire for learning is very strong. We have to find a way as a society to meet that while not creating incentives that uh, close the doors on the poor uh, and, and the minority groups. You know, I mean, look, you're one of the good guys. You are um, you not only have had Wesleyan jump in to this online education, you yourself are teaching online courses. I have. Are, I've taught a couple of them. It's been great fun. Which a lot of presidents would not do. You're also one of the few uh, presidents operating at your level who's really sort of exploring in, in a very powerful way the idea of a three-year graduation plan. So yep. it's $180,000 instead of $240,000. But that you're one of the good guys about this. But you also, and I'm going to try to make you mad. Now, you know that the Obama administration is looking at higher education and saying, wow, it's a $150 billion loan investment for the federal government every year, which is pyramided up to something like $860 million. You know, and so we, that's public monies. We have a right to ask a whole bunch of questions here about about graduation rates, about, uh, about, you know, accumulated student debt per university. You know, maybe we should be in the business somehow or other of, of looking at all, looking at the performance of these institutions, which which takes so much public money. Now, one official perhaps infelicitously uh, described this as rating them like blenders, which I'm sure didn't go over too well. Does any of that, though, go over? Does any of it seem legitimate to you? Yes. I think the legitimate part is to try to understand uh, graduation rates, to try to understand um, what school, how schools are performing in delivering the education they promised to deliver to students who are paying for that education with loans. I mean, I think as the, as the lender or as the guarantor of the lender, 
um, the, the government has a, an important role to pay there. As you know, uh, a, a great disproportionate uh, amount of the uh, bankruptcies or the, uh, I should say, the defaults on student loans come from f- for-profit institutions, mm-hmm. That the business model of which is just to get students to borrow a lot of money, they come to school, they don't get degrees, and then the institution gets paid uh, be, uh, through the default process. Um, and, and that's a horrific uh, thing. And and one of and graduating from college with excessive debt is diametrically opposed to what I've described as revealing the value of your diploma beyond graduation after you after after you leave the school because then after you leave the school what you keep feeling from the university is the sh- are the shackles that they've put on you with your debt. So I, I, I do think that the loan issue is a is a very important one, but a one size fits all rating system, especially one that tries to determine the value of your diploma by your starting salary right after graduation, seems to me really just uh, silly and, and, uh, and, and anti-educational. Um, you're, it's, the, it's the wrong metric uh, for evaluating schools across the country. However, showing what the average indebtedness is at schools, showing what default rates are at schools, showing what graduation rates are at schools, this seems to me a really good thing to do. Uh, you know, the, the rating system that's most widely used in U.S. News and World Report, they measure s- spending per student. So if you want to go up in U.S. News and World Report, all you have to do is you charge more tuition, you spend more money, and you'll go up. And I'm- that's a crazy incentive in, in this world. But it is one that operates for many schools. And so I think finding other rating systems that measure time to graduation, graduation rates, uh, uh, the, the default rates, loan rates. I, I think those are actually very useful. Uh, another possibility, I, I'd like to hear what you think about this, is also measuring, and this is something that is sometimes hard to get transparency on, um, the amount of teaching that's being done by adjuncts. Not that there's anything wrong with adjuncts. Many of them are great teachers. One of them is me. Um, <laughs> you know, But these are overburdened. They are the jodes uh, of, of, of higher education. They are, yeah. you know. And, and so at, at the same time that, that higher education costs have accelerated like 1,200% since I graduated from college in the 1970s, um, a lot of the teaching seems to be shifted over to these people getting paid three or four thousand dollars a course absolutely no it's and that's a shameful thing and and it's it is uh you know we have created incentives for universities to um try to deliver the course courses they offer in the cheapest possible fashion liberating the the high-flying professors for research um and so they get the credit for the high-flying professors where most of the courses are taught by people who are part-time who have no job security sometimes no benefits um, uh, sometimes they do a great job, but right, all the conditions are there for them to do a less than stellar job. And so I, I do think this is a real problem. I mean, we hire, you know, we have a, some great part-time faculty. Amy Bloom, the wonderful novelist, is, uh, runs our cre- creative writing center. You know, she's, uh, she's a distinguished uh, visitor, right? She's part-time, mm-hmm. uh, but she's teaching students, and they're, you know, very lucky to be in her classes. We have the Tony Scott, the chief film critic from the New York Times, teaches here, you know, uh, every spring. And but for for us, having the the vast majority of our faculty be full time 
scholar teachers is absolutely crucial. Uh, I've been at places, you know, all my life I've been in places where the faculty, uh, either as a student or as I was teaching, the faculty had a very high research aspirations, but they also were dedicated to teaching. I think the idea that research is somehow antithetical to teaching, that somehow you can't have teacher scholars, I think this is bogus, and, and I, I think we have to resist it. Some of the great universities in this country are populated by faculty who are pr producing scientific experiments and books and, and artworks and also changing the lives of their undergraduates. All right, Michael Roth, uh, we could talk uh, very happily for a couple hours here, but uh, I know your time is limited and we promised that we would also talk about climate change. So thanks very much for joining us. It's been my pleasure, Colin. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, I guess it's been Michael Roth. His newest book is Beyond the University, Why Liberal Education Matters. When we come back, we'll talk to Rob Klee. He's the commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. He's also named after a painter. I know that because I have a liberal arts education. Them on your dreams The one they picked The one you know by all right, uh, we're back, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, something that you no doubt encountered in your perusals uh, of the news today, and that is a proposal by the Obama administration uh, to uh, cut carbon dioxide emissions from power plants by 30 percent by 2030. So joining us now is uh, Rob Klee, uh, the commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Education, of Energy and Environmental Protection. Uh, welcome, to the, welcome to the show. You're going to give me uh, education as well. Colin. Yeah, I, I thought, why not expand the department? It's uh, consolidation. It works. Uh, uh, all right. Colin, thanks for having me on. Well, now, my inter first of all, my understanding of the way this has been posed so far, phrased so far, it's effectively the Obama administration and the EPA uh, and one of your predecessor predecessors, Gina McCarthy, saying, we don't really care how you get there, you know, whatever works uh, to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, whether it's some combination of regulation and conservation and uh, alternative energy forms, however you get there, you got to get there, right? Yep. No, and it's a big, bold, historic initiative, and it does have uh, significant uh, requirements, but flexible compliance mechanisms. And that's, uh, that's something that we're pleased about here because the rule actually recognizes all the good work that we've been doing here in Connecticut to reduce carbon emissions from the power sector, sector and recognizes that our participation in the regional greenhouse gas initiative, or REGI as it's commonly called, is one of those ways that states can, can meet the new uh, requirements put forth by EPA. And for people who don't know about REGI, give us a sense. This is, among other things, uh, a trading model? Yep, it's a, a cap-and-trade system. It uses market forces to find the most efficient and effective ways to reduce emissions from the power sector. It's only uh, focused here on the power sector, there are other cap and trade uh, systems that are broader than ours. But it's a we use have used. Uh, it's the first market-based cap and trade scheme in the United States. And when you uh, pollute, you have to buy an allowance. So those allowances have actually, for Connecticut, raised more than eighty-seven million dollars that we've been investing in our efficiency programs and renewable uh, energy programs in both the residential and commercial sector. Now, notwithstanding the effectiveness of this program, we still do, correct me if I'm wrong, we do have one last coal-fired power plant uh, down in Bridgeport? Uh, we do. It's, uh, it's a, a unit that only runs maybe a, a week or two a year. It's, uh, that is our only coal-fired plant. And, and you know, to, as, as the broader picture looks to you, um, I mean, you know, we seem to be talking about coal nationally. 
um, at a time when, in fact, uh, coal seems to be struggling economically. I mean, when you're talking about market forces, uh, natural gas has arisen as a very effective competitor to coal, burns cleaner, and in many cases runs cheaper, right? Is is beating up on coal at this, play, this point, uh, even though it does produce, I think, more electricity in America than any other means, is it beating up on kind of a sick giant that's on its way to, the, to its deathbed anyway? Um, I, I'm not sure about about that, but it's the um, coal plants are still actually a considerable problem for us here in Connecticut, even though we don't have them here, because we're a downwind state, and coal plants are uh, notorious on the other sort of types of pollutants, the sulfur dioxides, the nitrogen oxides, the mercury. So there's actually the combined benefits of a rule that is addressing the um, the multiple problems that have come from coal, and that's important for us here in Connecticut because those other pollutants in particular really impact the health of our citizens in Connecticut, particularly those with asthma and other respiratory illnesses. So uh, I'm okay with addressing uh, coal plants, particularly ones upwind that are sending stuff down to our, our state. Um, from the point of view of the overall health of the environment and obviously also our concerns about climate change, you, know, you look at something like this, the, the proposal that's been made, you know the first thing that's going to happen is it's going to be an administrative and litigation pinata, right? It's, it's going to be whacked uh, all over the place by, by the forces that oppose it. Um, is it kind of your sense? I mean, you know, the, when, when I ask you about this, the first thing you do is talk about Reggie. Uh, in other words, talk about something that consortiums of states can do w- without the empowerment of the federal government. Um, I mean, is it your sense that maybe some of these problems are going to have to be addressed in another way, at another level, while this battle supreme wages on at the federal level? Well, from Connecticut's perspective and the the Reggie state's perspective, we're going to keep doing what we're doing in our in our own regional greenhouse gas uh, compact and, and initiative. And it, it will the rule will be litigated, as I think almost every single rule EPA has ever issued has been litigated considerably. And um, I, I think we've shown here in Connecticut and through Reggie that it's possible to really address climate in a in a robust way and have a robust clean energy economy at the same time. We're reinvesting those Reggie proceeds into our clean tech sector. We're increasing the amount of uh, in-state solar. Um, we've had a tenfold increase in just the last three years from 2010 to 2013 because of the policies and programs we're doing here in Connecticut. And we're going to keep on doing them. And we were going to keep on doing them if the rule came out or if it didn't come out because this makes sense for Connecticut and it's really um, invigorating and growing a, a sort of new clean economy here. Um, I hear optimism in your voice. On the other hand, I mean, ask any climate specialist, even if this thing went through without a hitch, it really is just, you'd, you'd have to see it, say it, it's just one tiny spear point, you know, in a gigantic battle that has to be waged over climate change and, and over CO2, right? Well, correct. And But there are things that we're doing in the other sectors, the non-power uh, sector, uh, where Connecticut, again, is leading the charge. We've doubled the, uh, our investment in cost-effective efficiency programs. We uh, built out our charging network for electric vehicles that you're now no longer any more than 20 minutes or 20 miles from a charging station. We've entered in a compact again with seven other states to really have people deploy more of these zero-emission vehicles. The things we're even doing on recycling 
add up to help reduce the carbon impact because if you're taking a, a material that's been extracted uh, long ago from the ground and keeping it cycling through the economy, you're avoiding all those carbon emissions from the energy that's required to dig up uh, raw material and ore and, and whatnot. So we're, we're approaching this all across all sectors and, and in some real innovative ways here in Connecticut. So, uh, and, and not to sort of th- th- then come back and harp on this, I mean, it almost sounds as though, even though you you said earlier in our conversation, you're happy to have federal help in curtailing coal plant emissions, it feels as though what you're talking about right now is so much more comprehensive than what's being talked about at the federal level, which is one simple and, and really kind of, you know, a significant thing, but one simple piece of a very large puzzle. Um, but it, it is, I, I'll, I'll stress again, this is a bold and historic initiative, and it's bringing uh, others across the nation up to the level of uh, attention to this that Connecticut and the other uh, northeastern and mid-Atlantic states, and, and California, too, and, and a couple of others. But it's it's leveling the playing field in some ways, bringing everyone up to really address this as the serious problem it is. Because, as you know, we are actually seeing the effects of climate change already here in Connecticut, and that's also been a, a message that's been coming out loud and clear about heat waves and coastal floodings and river flooding and all in our infrastructure that is under under threat. So we need to, it's a serious problem that we need to act seriously to address. All right. Well, Rob Clee, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, this is all apropos of the news uh, that is uh, in national news today. Rob Clee is the commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection. Thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks so much for having me on. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, because we are the leading provider of journalism news about Jeopardy, at least we think we might be, at least within public radio, we're going to tell you about how, in fact, um, I don't know how to put it exactly, but Jeopardy's well-known gender bias seems to be breaking the other way, finally. Put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got till it's gone They paid paradise, put up a parking lot All right, so uh, this is the point uh, where ordinarily Kayone uh, th- does all the thank yous and stuff, but she's not here today. Uh, so I have to figure out who I have to thank, and I will do so by looking around me, observing me. So Betsy Kaplan is uh, producing our show, uh, as uh, is pretty much always the case, uh, and she's doing a fabulous job. Thanks to, so much to Betsy Kaplan. Uh, in our intern room, uh, Allison Ehrenreich, making a comeback uh, as uh, as an intern here. She's uh, back with us today. Did I see Lily Tyson today as well? I think she might be around. Lily Tyson, see how well I'm doing? The part of Bill Curry was played by Arthur Chu. We are after all, heading into a segment uh, about Jeopardy. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. You can tweet at him, too, at WNPR Colin, or just follow us at WNPR Colin. Have I said that enough times? Uh, I don't have a good joke about the Faith Middleton Show staff. I was too lazy to write one. So we'll move on here. Uh, as you know, we are the leading source of information and analysis uh, on the public radio spectrum about the game show Jeopardy. We've done many, many uh, stories about it. So we were quite excited uh, to build on that reputation when we saw that Steve Fries, uh, a writer uh, based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, who's a writer, whose work has appeared in all kinds of publications, New York Times, Boston Globe, Wired, uh, has written for the Vulture section of the New York Magazine platform, what's behind the unprecedented run of female Jeopardy winners for uh, uh, for Alex Trebek and his crew uh, there at Jeopardy. So, w- welcome to the show, Steve Fries. 
Thank you for having me. And and so, I, I even though I sort of watched Jeopardy from time to time, I hadn't really sort of paid attention to this. There really has been this incredible run. If you just look at 2014 alone, not yeah. only has there is there this one mega champion, but in general, women have dominated. It, it is kind of impressive. I mean, the fact is that for most of the show's career, that most of the show's run. It's been men. It's been white men. And, in fact, just last month when they had their Battle of the Decades championship, it seemed like they had had to stretch to find very uh, enough women um, from their 30 years to put on the show for for that big, you know, multi-generational tournament. Um, and in the meantime, this year, like we said, there's been this tremendous streak of women who have been, they've been winning the show more often. There have been more contestants that are women than, than men. And then, of course, right now, there is a woman who has just broken almost every record so far, except for the one set by Ken Jennings, who went 74 games back in 2004. Yeah, so this woman is uh, Juliet Collins from Wilmette, Illinois, uh, and I think she is a Wellesley grad. Uh, not that that's necessary. We just did a whole segment on liberal education, so I had to mention that. So, um, and, but you know, even even including her, but looking at the entire picture, as you point yeah. out in your article of the seventy-three non-tournament matches that have aired so far in twenty fourteen, female players have won forty-five. So right. that seems like a significant corrective. Now, before we get to the, to the the ways in which this was corrected, one of the things that you talk about in your article article is, why does this matter outside the circumference uh, of Jeopardy? You know, it's interesting, because I wasn't a big Jeopardy fan until a few years ago, and we started to DVR it and watch it regularly, and then once you do, you start to become aware of how it's talked about in the culture, and I don't think I can think of a single other pop culture place where intellectual achievement is glamorized. It can be respected in various places, but it is, it, it is, you know, you're on television and you're winning a good deal of money for knowing a lot of stuff. And so it matters because we have this ongoing conversation in this culture about men and women and what women are interested in and why they do or don't achieve in certain areas of industry. Um, so in this one particular area, just to have so many women winning and winning big, um, and in, in, in some cases winning with a great deal of, um, of personality and um, good nature, uh, is actually a really good thing for people to see. And, you know, yeah, so women are leaning in on Jeopardy. And, um, the, you know, I mean, Jeopardy is sort of odd that way, too, because even though it's obviously a very competitive thing, um, one of the things that you have to do when you when you play Jeopardy is not appear too competitive. So Arthur Chu, who we mentioned in passing a little while ago, sort of been the other big story over, over the last six months of Jeopardy. And he kind of got in trouble for just appearing I mean, it's almost as though you have you have to compete on Jeopardy without appearing uh, to be a cutthroat and uh, competitor. The big knock against him was he'd do anything to win, as if that wasn't sort of basically what everybody right. does playing a game. And you, yeah, I mean, the other shoe thing was so weird to me. I didn't really understand what the criticism was exactly. It, it's a game, and he's doing it well. It's like sometimes when you remember in the beginning of uh, that um, the reality show Survivor, mm -hmm. there was all this drama because people were being cutthroat towards one another. Well, that's the, that's the point. It's a game. Um, I, I didn't get that, but I will say this about that: mm -hmm. Arthur Chu, um, as a male, mm -hmm. uh, was getting 
a lot more attention for what turned out to be a much smaller achievement than Julia, Julia Collins got. I mean, Julia Collins is now starting to get a decent amount of national exposure, um, but it took her winning 18, 19 games and $400,000. And Arthur Chu was, was on Fox and Friends after four games. So, I mean, I mean <laughs> the difference in sort of the public interest in these people is, is interesting to me as well. Yeah. And we, if we have time, we'll come back to that. But let's sort of talk about some of the, um, the remedies. Now, it starts right with how many contestants there actually are. Sure. So if there's two men and one woman on the panel every single night, you know, the odds are going to suggest that, that men are going to win more often than women. So one of the things they had to do, I take it, is just change that balance a little bit. Yeah, I mean, they definitely have. I mean, they've definitely um, gone out looking. And uh, one of the women who has won a lot of money in the last few years is a woman named Stephanie Yass, and she's from uh, Milan, Michigan, which is actually only about an hour, maybe about an hour south of, of here in Ann Arbor. Um, and she did her audition in Toledo, Ohio. I mean, going into other places than the major cities is one way to find more diverse contestants. Mm-hmm. And it seems like over the last few years, they've been doing that. They've been going around the country and sort of looking under the rocks they haven't looked under before for um, for contestants. And it, it seems like they've paid off. I mean, the, when you take the uh, Jeopardy online test, which is the first step into the process, which I've done a few times and I've never never heard from them, mm-hmm. um, it, it that's sort of a, a gender-blind, color-blind test. It's just a, a computer test. And if you do well on that, then you go on to nec- the next thing. I, don't, I haven't heard anybody suggest that they've lowered the standards of the level of intelligence of the people who are, who are on the show. So, you know, it really does seem like it's an effort to try harder to find a more interesting group of people. Now, the other, another thing, another aspect to all this is obviously all those answers for which questions have to be thought up and provided, those answers are written by somebody. And it turned yeah. out that really from the get-go, Je- Jeopardy for an alarmingly long period of time apparently had all male writers coming up with those answers. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, mean I, I don't know why that would surprise anybody. I mean, television in general is like that. I mean, you know, I mean, most most TV sitcoms and and mo- most of Hollywood is pr- predominantly male written in in the writers' room. The, the the people who are running those things are are men. In this case, um, you know, there's clearly a um, an argument to be made that there has been a cultural bias. And and one of the comments that Stephanie Yass made to me about her um, her thoughts is that the categories sometimes are obviously you know, from a point of view that suggests that women, it's a surprise that there are famous women. You know, it, it wouldn't be, you wouldn't have a category that said male writers. Mm-hmm. But you do have a category that often female authors, things like that. So, you know, that, that, that sort of shows you sort of a mindset. Yeah, and I, the other complaint that I've heard is that they'll have a category called artists, and of all the answers, maybe maybe one will be you know Marie Cassatt or something like that. One one of them might be a woman, uh, but that that the answers within a non gender specific category tend to be right. male answers. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, I mean, you know, it, it is a matter of sort of breaking out of that mindset. The other thing that has come up, and I'm sure we're going to start to talk about this, but the other thing that's come up is. Um, over the years, Jeopardy has widened what it considers to be uh, valid knowledge, things that, that people should know. And 
So it, it's always included sports, it's always included cars, it's always included history and dates and authors and writers and opera. Um, but now it, it includes a lot more pop culture, mm-hmm. includes uh, current uh, events, um, it includes a lot of, of um, artistic and creative categories that, you know, the the white men of old wouldn't have deemed to be worthy. And so there is some suggestion that that has also opened up the opportunity for for women who may maybe have a more well-rounded um, base of knowledge to compete. Although we're stepping out on a little bit of a minefield here, yeah. suggesting that women would be more amenable to pop culture questions than, you know, questions about isotopes. Uh, um, I'm, I'm just reporting. I, I'm not... <laughs> Offering my my opinion, I'm just saying that this is something that's been said. It's also interesting to note that during the uh, Battle of the Champions, uh, the Battle of Decades that they had a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a bit of, of Twitter traffic about some of the categories. There was a category regarding um, a, a costume designer from Broadway, and another one about uh, Oscar-winning songs. And there were uh, Jeffrey Diehards who said that this was considered to be soft knowledge, not not information that you know, the the great Jeopardy champions should need to know. Well, listen, uh, this is a fascinating stuff. And, uh, of course, uh, please keep us in the loop if you if you come up with any other Jeopardy insights. We are a leading clearinghouse for this kind of information. Meanwhile, uh, Steve Fries, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Uh, let me just tell you a little bit in the time that remains uh, what's coming up this week. Tomorrow's a show about food insecurity. One of the things that we wanted to talk to you a little bit about is, you know, here in Connecticut, you just sort of feel like there's enough money, there's enough affluence. Uh, there really can't be that many people who are hungry or who don't really have a good sense of, of where their food supply is going to come from. It turns out it's a much broader, uh, a much more widespread problem. Uh, it is almost axiomatic that you know somebody who's facing food insecurity security. They might, may not tell you that because obviously it's not something people are terribly proud of. But you probably can't come in contact with somebody in your life who's facing that. Also, uh, that's uh, tomorrow's show on Wednesday. We're joining forces with Connecticut Explored, the uh, history magazine, to talk about the underworld of Connecticut. An underworld we will use in lots of different ways. But Nick Bellantoni, who's the uh, state archaeologist who's on the cusp of retirement, will uh, be making an appearance with us to talk about the things that he digs up in the underworld uh, of Connecticut. Uh, on Thursday, Jerry Adler and uh, Richard Klein. Jerry Adler, you may remember as Hesh on The Sopranos, but he's been many other things. Uh, two longtime actors will be in here with us. And then, of course, Friday is the nose. All right. Thanks to everybody who helped out today. And we will be back tomorrow.